The crimes, the criminals, why did they do it? Who got hurt? Did they meet justice or commit the perfect crime? You'll find all the clues at Jim Harold's Crime Scene. Welcome to the Crime Scene. I'm Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And we have with us one of our favorite guests on the show. I'm talking about Alan Warren. He has written numerous true crime books. He always has a fascinating take on these, uh, well, for lack of a better word, monsters. Alan, uh, how many books are you up to now? Oh, boy. Um, 14 published, and I've got one in a publisher right now, and one more just about ready to go. You do such a great job of uh, unearthing these monsters. Some of them I've never heard of, but boy, when I get into it, I'm like, wow, I thought the last one was bad. The next one is worse sometimes, but uh, my goodness, my goodness. Well, this is the true story of Dennis Nilsson. We're going to talk about that. That's part of the British Criminals series. This is volume four. It's entitled Drinks, Dinner, and Death. So tell us, how'd you find out about Dennis Andrew Nilsson? Well, it was it was because when I was doing another case in, in the UK and I was dealing with a killer that's alive and in prison and we were communicating and uh, there was a friend of, of him that was communicating with Nilsson back at the time when he was still alive. And so it just sort of that that piqued my interest. And then um, I knew about the case a little bit and I found out more about it and then uh, got a lot of his letters. And uh, that opened up a whole whole new angle to the book. Now, um, the thing is, is, with serial killers, a lot of times we think that it's strictly an American phenomenon. But you have kind of uncovered this layer of British serial killers. So it seems like it's not just uh, an American uh, situation here. Oh, no, it never has been. You know, you can go back to Jack the Ripper and things like that. I think America, um, the focus was on them for so many years. And um, it's considered to be the serial capital of the world because they, it's it's estimated at 67 percent of serial killers are in the u.s but before i get screamed at <laughs> i also know that there's a lot of countries that don't have good reporting and good stats that we don't know so we don't know really where where the u.s is compared to the rest of the world but but the uk has a certainly uh their share and so does germany well the thing is you think the united states is a is a large country it's very mobile i would seem and maybe populations are more transient than they are in other places i would think that there are a lot of things about the geography of the united states the makeup of the united states that would make it i don't want to say more desirable but more likely that you might have somebody that's a serial killer and just by the virtue of there's a lot of people now if there's a serial killer in china chances are we aren't going to hear a lot about it uh yeah <laughs> or, no, it's true uh, yeah so yeah i think that probably that reputation is partially deserved and partially maybe kind of skewed and maybe a little bit unfair but uh regardless of what they are there, it's just a terrible, terrible thing. Now, with uh, Nilsson, getting back to our case today, uh, from the outside, it would seem to me that up until he was discovered, he was just kind of considered this mild-mannered 
government worker or wasn't wasn't that kind of his story oh yeah yeah i mean he was in the military he was a policeman for a while and uh and then he switched over to the uh yeah government worker and uh he was always mild-mannered and um polite um well-behaved uh fairly well-dressed um so yeah just your average joe really um but he he was uh, killing for a long time. Now, what was it? we always want to go back to the childhood of these people who do this? Was there anything untoward or strange about his childhood? Was he the subject of abuse or anything that would have hinted to his uh, later proclivities? Uh, you know, the childhood was a little a little bit different. Um, you know, he was he was actually raised in Scotland. His parents actually came from uh, Norway, and they f- fleed uh, because of the Nazi occupation in in forty two. So um, he and so he was in a very very uh, small fishing community, and he used to spend a lot of time with his grandfather. And it seemed like the big thing that happened that that, that we noticed a difference is um, his grandfather died. And um, it really shocked him. And the, and the way that his uh, family it, it, it told him, too, or like he, they had the body in the kitchen, and they just, uh, do you want to see Grandpa? Yeah, sure, and opened the door, and there he was dead. And it, it, it really took a big, um, it, it took a big chunk out of him. He was, he was devastated, and he would, you know, we know this, he would, he would walk out in the water and uh, pretend he was drowning. So he had a real... Uh, fascination with it now um going on um he had an issue where he discovered as i understand that he was gay and obviously at that time unfortunately people were thought to 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 made to believe that there was something wrong with that or that they should hide that um how did that play into his story well, in a couple of different ways. One, one big thing was um, when, uh, when he went home and, and told, told the parents, um, especially because they, they, they had all watched a program on, on television about it and beware of the homosexual, right, where, you know, they, they were going to do all these bad things and, and don't trust them and stuff. And uh, so um, he, he actually uh, told the parents and um, actually almost had never, never had any dealings with them again. Um, wow. It, it really devastated the family in their eyes and, and his eyes. It just, um, uh, they didn't understand. And, and, and he was young and being rebellious toward them. So. And then he, he got into the armed forces right away, didn't he, at a very young age? Yeah, it was his escape from home. I mean, really, uh, it, 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 that's what it really was. It was somewhere to go, and uh, he stayed with the armed forces for years and and worked uh, primarily as a chef in most of the uh, locations they sent him to. Now, did is his killing? I mean, was that something that started in the early days? Is that something that started later? It started later. Um, there, there are some stories of him in the military, of course, um, 
you know, uh, doing little things, um, coming on to men and getting in trouble. And there was, there's also stories of him uh, uh, almost being killed uh, in Africa when he was uh, in a base and, and a lot of different things. And um, that one was a weird one because he came back to that admitting that he would uh, think of having sex uh, with a lot of the uh, soldiers he was around and and a lot of the different dead people and oh if they my. weren't yeah and if they weren't dead he would dream that they would be oh my oh my god so yeah so so he, but we don't know if he actually killed anybody in those days it just you know who knows it, it maybe not never went that far or maybe it did but just there's just no way to go back now so when do you think the killing started? I, I really think it happened probably in the military in some of the bases, like especially in Africa and stuff where, where like if you read that little part where, you know, he's in the cab and the, the explosions and how you can lay uh, on the road for 24 hours before anybody finds you and just, just the unruly uh, in those countries. I, I, I bet that's when it started. Um, because as soon as he gets into back into England and living as a regular citizen, um, we know he started killing. How did his job facilitate his killing, allow his killing play into his persona? Because again, to me, and they always say, watch out for the quiet ones. But to me, <laughs> you think of a British bureaucrat with glasses. Uh, I mean, you're not thinking killer. That's the last thing you're thinking. Did that in some way facilitate his ability to find and, uh, and kill his victims? Oh, I think so. I mean, if you're, if you're, first of all, you're a constable. And so in England, they're the ones that walk around the streets. And uh, so they get to know the community and, and they take care of small crimes, you know, parking and, and small issues. And, um, so they're really a part. And so he was very um, socially aware of the communities and they were of him and he becomes a trusted person, you know, for most people. So that gives people a sense of safety around him. And, and not only is that bad for the people uh, because they don't know him, but he also learns that that mild mannered beha behavior and the behavior as an officer, he could use to lure people in and make them feel safe. Now, if I'm correct, we're talking about at least 12 young men for this. Is that correct? 12 young men that had been murdered? Yeah, that's, um, that's really all we can say for sure. But there was a ton, ton of men that were murdered that or went missing and stuff that were in his, you know, in his area and stuff like that. So yeah, there's a lot of question about that. Now this happened, as I understand it, between 78 and 83, when these men were murdered, did the police over in the UK, did they understand that they had a serial killer on their hands or were they thinking, Oh, these are just random deaths. Uh, what, what were their thoughts? Well, the first little while they didn't even realize, and you know, for the most part, it was um, it was it was homosexuals and or transients or people with not a lot of money, and uh, so uh, 
hate, regretfully, we have to say that they didn't really care so much. Um, it was just considered the um, the bad people. The uh, they had a lot of different names for them. I, you know, uh, but in the in most of the police's opinion. Um, it was kind of like a waste of time, like, you know, and they'd find bodies. It was, this is like the Stephen Port case where they kept finding bodies and, and just marking it down as an overdose or whatever. And there's no real, um, focus put on them, uh, because of where they come from and because they're poor and they're back then probably because they're gay. Um, they didn't seem to care as much. Yeah, and that was something I was going to ask you because I was guessing that might be the case because, I mean, I think we forget how things have progressed and how far they've progressed. And it's really sad when you think of because of someone's somebody's murdered and because of their sexual orientation that they're thought of as less than. And I think we still see the same thing with prostitutes and those kind of things that, that police... I think in the States here, you know, if somebody is murdered, let's say in a suburban area and they're a professional or something like that. And, and, you know, there'll be all over the news plastered all over the news and it's a cause celeb. And, and of course that is a tragedy. Don't get me wrong. But then if you find somebody in the inner city, who's uh, makes their living through prostitution. Now, whether you think that's a moral thing or an immoral thing or uh, it's obviously illegal, but that's still a person <laughs> and they should be in my mind. And I think in most reasonable people's minds considered the same, the same, but that is not the reality. And I think you see that in these cases with folks that, uh, that were gay, they were treated as uh, less than, and, and they didn't want to dedicate the resources to it. At least that's, that's what I understand. Oh yeah, yeah. No, they they completely uh, were not interested. And in fact, you'll see there's a couple of cases where he actually brought home someone, a young fellow, and he would attempt to kill them, and they would get into a fight, and they would even get away, and that person would go to the police, and the police even came out and questioned him once, and he just said it was uh, he gave him a different story, and basically it's just a lover spat. And the police just said, yeah, okay, and, and left it at that. You know, they, they didn't really care um, enough to get into it. Now, um, what was the, the turning of the worm? What, what made police say, wait a minute, <laughs> this might be our guy? What, what did it? Well, actually, it wasn't. What it was was... Um, he, he lived in one place for a, a period of time and uh, it was on the, the basement floor and he had a little garden. And so, of course, when he uh, killed people, they would eventually end up under the floorboards in, in, in his suite in the, in the ground or in the, um, in the garden. And he would also have bonfires for the community and burn tire, rubber like tires as well as body parts. Oh, my gosh. So we see the rubber would cover right. up the smell. And so, so he did that. And then, then um, the building was selling, so he was forced to move. And he moved to an apartment in an old building in a different neighborhood. And he lived on the top floor in the attic. So he no longer could put the bodies in the floorboards or in a garden. He had no more place. And so he decided that he would start um, 
um, cooking down the parts. So he, after he'd killed them, he would cut them up and cook the parts that he could and throw them away. And all the, all the tissue part and the livers and the insides, he would flush down the toilet. And over a period of a couple of weeks of doing this, or however long, when he was cleaning up, um, it plugged all the, the, the drains. The whole, the whole building was backflowed. And so the apartment building uh, managers called the owners who called the plumbers. And the plumbers came out. And when the guy got there, he went down into the drain and started started looking and he found what he described as looked like someone ate KFC and threw it away because it was all oh my gosh greasy slimy and there was little bones and he had never encountered this so he called the supervisor who uh, sent everybody out the next day and they realized they had uh, pieces of body and so therefore they called the police and when the police came and actually when they came to the to the door, they knew it was his suite that was causing the plug-ins, plug-up, and where it was coming from. And so they asked him about, about it, and he, he readily said, yeah, and you'll probably want to, you know, know more. And he took him up, and he had bags of body parts, and he didn't try to hide it or anything. He was just, yeah, there's all of this here, right? And that was just strange. So that's where, that's why he got caught, actually. Now, how did he go about killing people? What was his methodology? He had that fantasy where it comes back to where he would drown himself or he started seeing, uh, wanting to have sex with people that were dead. And um, so what he would do was he would take them home and and give them lots to drink and eat. And then um, he would... uh, try to get them in bed and then he would strangle them when when they fell asleep he would get his tie and and strangle them but not necessarily to death um just till they passed out and he would take and put them in the tub and he had this idea to wash and clean the bodies and he would shave all the body hair off and uh, some would come to and then he would choke them or drown them again and um he wanted to keep them around for days he would keep them for up to a week and he would sit them in the chair and talk to them he would go to work and come back and then tell them how his day was and then he would put them in bed with him he would watch movies with the body and it would just be to when the body could no longer be used because of decay and or whatever else that's when he would uh, take it apart and in the first place, yeah, you know, bury it and then burn it. But in the second place, he would have to cook and cut and dispose of it through the bathroom and stuff. So that was kind of his general MO. He had this fantasy to have a really clean, hairless, dead body with him. And he would, he would act like they were still, he had a real fantasy of, of living with someone in that type of relationship, which just was not uh, done back then at least not in public. Would you say, I mean, when you're, when, and I don't want to say you, I, I just say when a person kills somebody and then essentially lives with them, treats them as though they're real and has meals with them and watches television with them and uh, so forth and so on. I, I mean, that seems pretty crazy to me. 
was there th- the thought that he was truly insane? I mean, I know there's a difference between insanity and criminally insane. Criminally insane, as I understand it, is if you don't know what you are doing is wrong. And certainly he took steps to uh, conceal what he was doing. So I, I think by definition, he would not be considered uh, criminally insane, but there had to be some mental illness. There had to be. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he had an issue and I don't know what it was. He, he seemed to think that he had to um, have a person, you know, a mate, but they couldn't live. And the few times when he did try dating, I guess it just didn't work out, you know, that he would always be turned down. So it was this way of almost forcing uh, someone to be his, his uh, live-in partner. And that's kind of in his mind. And, and I, I don't know. I don't know if he really believed that they were dead or not, but he thought he was doing something good, which is kind of, you wow. know, it's straight crazy. And all of the interviews, even the one I put in with him, it's, um, he talks about everything so nonchalant, like as if he was like just doing what everybody else did. It's it just, he had a really strange attitude toward it. It was like, you know, you brush your teeth and you talk to a dead body or, you know, it's just kind of, was just part of every day. Wow. And, and it's really frightening because I guarantee you there's one or more of them out there right now who are just like him. And in terms of, you know, that twisted who would say, you know, I, I, I mean, Dahmer ate people. I, I, I mean, there are people just as twisted or, or people who have probably even done more that are out there. And it's just, it's so outside our frame of reference is, is, and I hate to use the word normal, but I'll use it as normal people who would never dream. And I'm not talking about sexual orientation or anything like that. I'm talking about somebody who would never think of killing anyone at all, let alone killing multiple people and keeping them for, uh, to be their, be their lover. I, I, I mean, it just, it's so outside of our frame of reference. It's still hard to believe that people like this do exist. And it's still, as much as you intellectually know, you hear a case, and you're like, he did what? He did what? It just, it just, uh, it, uh, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, but, but here yet it is. Yeah. It's, there's an endless amount of people out there that do this sort of thing, <clears throat> you know, not necessarily exactly, but, um, it's really hard to say why there's such a percentage, um, in society that does this. And, um, it's really, really bizarre. Um, <clears throat> one thing I do notice is that, um, Serial killers in different regions do things a little bit differently. Um, How so? so? Well, you know, like uh, I noticed when we were going through a lot of the German serial killers, <clears throat> they were really, um, they would eat body parts a lot, much, much more than other countries. Um, there, there's traits about serial killers in regions that uh, I, I can't really say why or explain why they would be that way. And, um, it, you know, so I just wonder if a lot of it's just learned behavior when, when you're really young 
without knowing or how much is it you're born with. I just, it's just, it's just a weird thing. Now, uh, his trial, was that open and shut? Was it a cause celeb? Uh, I mean, was there a, a lot of publicity around it? Talk to us about that process. Well, yeah, there, there, there's always a lot of talk when you get something like this going on because it's so seedy. Right. And, and they found so many, um, bodies in his first residence that um, they had no idea it had happened originally right so so there was there's a lot of uh, you know controversy over the whole thing and um, and of course the yeah the trial was just like anything else um, it was like an, an OJ Simpson of the time um, a lot of uh, you know, flash and talk and uh but the bottom line was they they only found him um that basically he was he was not fit to be convicted you know he was in in their case he was insane so they weren't going to put him to death and um he lived, uh, I guess, for years in, in in prison. Now he passed away last year. Was that natural causes? Was there any misadventure involved in that? Uh, well, he he had to, no. There was no misadventure. He was sick, sickly. He was having problems with liver. He had a, um, a cancer from earlier. He he was becoming very um, very ill all the time he didn't have much of a he didn't have a very good life in the last few years uh he was pretty sickly so this was kind of expected yeah because he was after all he was 73 so he wasn't an extremely young man by any means but let me ask you and you could talk about nelson or any of these killers because you've examined so many of them i think when horrible things happen we ask ourselves and then I think of North America, but certainly I'm sure they do the same thing in the UK as a society. Is there anything we could have done to have prevented this? Now, obviously I think that I, I think you've got to believe that the way he was treated over his sexuality certainly did not help the matter. I'm not saying that caused it, but certainly being discriminated against and treated in a very poor manner because he was gay uh, in, in, in a totally ridiculous manner, um, couldn't have helped, but I wouldn't think that that alone would have caused it because many people have been discriminated against for various things and they don't become killers. So I guess my question is Nilsson specifically, and then serial killers in general, is there anything that society can do to, to, to try to address this? No. <laughs> I actually agree with you. Let me let me put to you this way. There may be a case or two things could have been done differently, but in general, it seems like there are people out there wired to do this and they're going to do it if they have the opportunity. That's after doing these shows and talking to people, that's kind of the kind of the uh, conclusion I've come to is that Yeah, and they're evolving just as we are. So that's that's the other problem is we, we we find out things after the fact, you know, and and the serial killer evolves just as the whole society does. So they do different types of killings 
to fit and to adapt into the new society. You know, uh, they'll start using the, the the phone meeting apps, and you know, you're starting to see it. They just move along, so they have a different type of serial killing, um, a different way of getting people and manipulating people. But they have to change as a whole, just as we do, in order to fit. So it, we're always a step behind, in in my opinion. And I think things like um, profiling are a good thing. But it still leaves us behind the, you know, we're just not, you look at everything and everyone we profile up to now, and you try to apply it to new ones, and for the most part, it doesn't work. And, and actually, the capture rate on even the FBI profiles is really, really low, a low percentage, because we're always working with what has been and it gets us thinking in a new direction, but the problem is that the new serial killers change. You know, so it's it's just kind of an ongoing process, and, you know, I don't think there's a whole lot we can do. The best thing we can do, I think, looking at the whole picture, would be how we um, look out for serial killers. Like in the last couple of cases I've written about, so much was left for so long before the cops kind of started investigating that if they would have right from the onset or near the beginning, it would save from others being killed down the road. Um, so I think it's just kind of how we police and how we investigate and how we pick up these things and realize, well, look, you know, like it, you shouldn't have to hear about a serial killer from the media and then the police start to investigate. It kind of should be the other way around. So we've got to be more on it, and they've got to be looking for these sort of things. But that, that, I think that's the only way we can get better. And I also think that, like any kind of predator, these serial killers take advantage of areas of vulnerability. And I think one of them is, I do believe, and we've had this in the area where I'm from, the Cleveland, Ohio area, that sometimes serial killers will strike in disadvantaged areas because kind of like the Nilsson example that you laid out, the authorities don't care because for whatever reason, uh, here it was, uh, I think uh, the uh, serial killer was Soul, uh, Anthony Soul, and it was, I believe there were prostitutes involved. And a number were killed, and it took them a very long time to pick up on this. And it certainly did not reach the level of, quote, importance that it would have if these had been suburbanites uh, and, and more well-to-do people in more, quote, respectable walks of life. And I think that serial killers pick up on trans, uh, and transients and uh, people who are in disadvantaged communities uh, or marginalized communities and take advantage of that so they can have longer, more quote, fruitful runs in this. I think that's a problem too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of, um, yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of open ground in the, in the poor communities and a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of possibilities. There are a lot of access and people with not much, and, and, and same as people on highways, you know, I-45 and, 
and uh, the, the highway of tears and different things. It's it's just much easier. Like I don't think there's one serial killer in there. It becomes a place for serial killers or people that want to kill to go to. Yeah, it's a frightening, frightening, frightening situation. Well, uh, you always give us the scoop on these people, and one thing that I can say is I do feel it's good to be aware of it because maybe one night we don't go down that dark alley or maybe we make sure our doors are locked or whatever it might be. Not that we can ever protect ourselves 100% and in no way to blame victims, but I just think being aware and uh, aware of your surroundings and ever diligent, I think at least offers some, some protection, which is better than none at all. Oh, totally. It, 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 it make it just, it just makes you aware of the possibilities, you know, uh, it, it doesn't mean that, you know, there's a murderer in every corner. It just, it just, you can be aware of what happens and how things happen and, uh, just be cautious. Well, every time we talk, Alan, you scare the hell out of me with this. <laughs> uh, I mean, it really, they're, they're horrible stories, but I think they're stories that need to be told as horrible as they are, because I think again, to bring awareness out there and let people know that they need to need to be careful and maybe can't prevent them all. Can't stop them all, but it, at least it gives us more information. I think more information is better than less. And the book is drinks, dinner and death, a true story of Dennis Nilsson. It's part of the British criminals series volume four. And Alan Warren has been our guest. Alan, where can people find your book uh, this book and all the other books and all the other work you do in the true crime genre. Well, of course, there are most bookstores and they're on Amazon. Uh, I, my website is just alanrwarren.com. So that's A-L-A-N-R-W-A-R-R-E-N.com. Um, and of course, I'm on House of Mystery in on NBC and that's um, house of mystery radio.com. Very cool. Our guest has been Alan Warren. Once again, Alan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for tuning into the crime scene. We appreciate it. And as always be careful out there. Bye-bye everybody. <laughs>